Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. I'm Royfield Brown, who is in a forever sunny California. And today we have a special guest with us, a good friend of mine, an old mucker of mine, Errol Murray, who has done something quite extraordinary a couple of years ago. He went to Ukraine and, and he trained Ukrainian media in how to use their phones as a tool to document and to report the goings-on of Ukraine. And I think we've all seen the stunning results of the work that people like Errol have actually done in terms of training these new cadre of journalists, because one of the most stunning things for me is how the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian people, and of course its media have been using their phones as a weapon, not only to document the war, but also to use it as an effective tool for propaganda, to be out there on the spot but first Errol Murray you have to tell us tell us a little bit something about you tell us about your media background and before we we find you in Ukraine a couple of years ago well first of all thanks very much Royfield for um, uh, bringing me into this group it's amazing I'm I'm very excited about uh, how this works Um, I was a journalist in um, print in the um, 90s and moved into social media um, in the um, noughties, in the early noughties, at a time when there wasn't a real social media. Uh, People were still thinking, what's an email address at that time? And and, uh, I moved into, from social media, I moved into um, radio and... um, complained all the time because um, my colleagues at the BBC in London, which is the national broadcaster in the UK, um, radio always got the short shrift and um, TV got all the money and all the the funding. So I said, let's let's get some more money into radio. And they said, nope, but you can have a go at TV. And uh, I was trained to be a video journalist which um, allowed me to use 
um, my radio background, my social media background, and find a way to record, report, reflect on all platforms in the media. I know that you are someone who's really well regarded in terms of what you do and, you, and you've and you done a lot of training. Um, tell, tell us about getting that call to go to Ukraine uh, to train. Um, were you even exactly aware of where Ukraine was on the map? Absolutely not. It wasn't somewhere that I was aware of. It wasn't somewhere that I'd thought about. I was working, I'd been filming and training internationally beforehand, and I was working at several universities, University of Arts in London, um, uh, the London College of Printing and um, Newcastle University, and um, I'd been working in Italy just um, before I got the call, and it was um, was a strange step for me because this was totally out of my comfort zone it wasn't an area that I was familiar with and um and I was thinking well what am I going to find here but as life goes um you you take a step you know I think um a friend of mine always said never turn left because you don't know where you'll go and I turned left and it was amazing so what exactly was your brief? Um, what were you told to do? What were you scheduled to do? And, and how long were you, uh, you know, contracted to be there? My brief was to teach um, the staff at UAPBC, which is um, the state broadcaster in Ukraine. My, my brief was to teach them to use um, cameras on their phones to film they the amount of funding that the state broadcaster had at that time this is 2019 2020 um the, the funding they had was minimal they didn't have much uh, in terms of cash um if you like i'll send you some of the photos of the cameras that we were using royfield and um there were wooden blocks used to sort of like keep bits of battery together on the back of sort of like 20 year old cameras and it was really it was it was difficult for them you could see that but the creativity was uh, it was astounding they were great and um they'd worked out that it was cheaper for journalists to use their own phones uh than for the broadcaster to upgrade the cameras that they were using so i helped to facilitate that train them in um, basic sort of methods of um, capturing video, telling stories with um, smartphones, um, how best to capture audio, how to work around light. And um, they they took it all in. They swallowed it up and um, went out and created some great results straight away. The... Um, the the time that I was there was probably uh, every um, two months for about two weeks across the year. So I got a good grasp of, of what was happening out there. I was in Kiev and Venezia in central UK, and I was in Lutsk and Lviv in the west, and I was in... Uh, Kharkiv and Sevron Sev- Donetsk in the east. Um, 
So Violet Donetsk um, was in the Donblast um, region, which is basically right on the edge of the the war zone that um, the, the area that Russia has been um, fighting to reclaim over the last um, five years. What was the political temperature like in Ukraine back in the late uh, 2019 and 2020? Um, Zelensky has just been voted in as president and he's having this anti-corruption campaign. Um, But there was no feeling back then, or or, or was there, that uh, relations with Russia were going to deteriorate deteriorate so much that potentially the people who you were training were going to be war correspondents? My um, good friend uh, who worked out there was um, the head of news um, for the regions at UAPBC, uh, Fadir, um, used to talk about Russia as their crazy neighbours and they'd have parties and they'd be bashing on their doors and um, shouting at them in the street, but they didn't really bother them. And that's how he described Ukraine's relationship with with Russia. Um, at the time, there was there was conflict. Um, the, the well, let's go back to 20, 2014 and um, the sitting um, president at that time. Uh, was not trusted. He was too close to Russia um, for a lot of the um, the the public, and they they really didn't um, feel he was uh, up to the job. And there was a riot. There were protests in the street. A lot of the protests were based in a square called Maidan Square in um, Kiev, and a lot of the people uh, would go across the country to go to Maidan Square and protest about what was happening. In the end, the um, the sitting president slipped away and disappeared into Russia, um, fulfilling a lot of people's thoughts of what he was like and what his ideals were. And then the um, Zelensky was voted in. Uh, he, he had a, a... Many people may know that he he was a TV actor and he was playing a role of a teacher who became the president. And all of a sudden he goes to become um, a president in real life and it, it shocked the whole country. But um, around the time of him being elected, uh, Russia um, wanted to take on the, Dom, the Donbass area, which is the two of the eastern regions uh, in Ukraine, and um, and it basically became war. And we, we, we forget they've been at war for three years, slightly longer than three years. And when I went there, I went to a country that was at war. That, that conflict, and, and, you're, and you're really right to pull me up about this, because obviously there was the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, and then Lugansk and Donetsk. Um, there was, the, you know, the, those two regions. Um, Russia sends in un, ununiformed Russian troops, uh, along with a whole load of gangsters, and fundamentally those, those two uh, bits of Ukraine uh, break away. And in 2015, yeah. there is the uh, Minsk Agreement and a line of control and, and de facto 
these are cleaved away um, from Ukraine. So was was there a sense um, that this conflict, which had, was always on a slow boil, you're completely right, it had never come to a full stop, that you were going to be training these journalists to be, you know, potentially to be on that front line and to be documenting that war? The vast majority of the journalists that I was training um, never saw any um, uh, violent conflict from um, caused by Russia. So their lives were, were quite um, regular. They were covering stories about health, education, science, um, government corruption, too much government corruption, unfortunately. And, um, and Russia figured in it, but not massively. Um, but the, um, the TV stations in the east, because they're in an area that was occupied, um, they covered um, war-related stories regularly. For one example, um, the Russian church was um, quite active in Ukraine, and um, a lot of people put their faith above their national perspective. So because the church was in Russia, they'd support the Russian church and not support the Ukrainian state. And um, there were arguments and protests about the church in the Don Donblast area, in the Donblast region. And it was um, the Russian church was uh, was um, the power was taken away from the church, and a lot of people got very upset about it. And these were some of the reports that were being covered. So it's not always directly about conflict; it was about the impact of war that we were seeing. And um, lots of the journalists that I was working with in that area um, were covering these types of stories. It was it was quite quite worrying because you talk to them about what they've seen or what they've done, and um, they take out their equipment, they show you their camera, they show you the microphones, they show you the leads, um, they show you their flak jacket, they show you their boots, they show you their bulletproof helmet, and things like that bring home the idea that you know they're not going into um they're not going into a city they're not going into a town they're not covering rural affairs they're going into a war zone and that that stopped me in my tracks straight away tell us what it was like for you to be traveling around uh ukraine one of the things um which is really marked at the start of the Russian invasion was the flood of black and brown people leaving Ukraine, saying that they had problems leaving Ukraine. Uh, the UN even um, made note of this, and it and it and it was a footnote to to the early news reports that um, African students, uh, Indian students. Uh, experienced uh, racism on, on the border trying to get um, out of Ukraine in, into Poland. Um, I'm guessing that there weren't too many black and brown people um, in Ukraine. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but also just tell me how you were perceived being a, a black Englishman uh, working in this country in Eastern Europe. Okay, well, 
um, I think the first thing I need to explain to you is something called the nod. Do you know what I'm talking about, Royfield? I absolutely do know what the nod is, Errol. <laughs> of course I know what the nod is. Well, will you tell me what the nod is. Well, it, when you're in an environment uh, where there's nobody else uh, uh, of colour, and then when you see a person of colour, you both look at each other and give each other half a nod. You don't even have to say, say anything to each other, but you both acknowledge that you're both in an environment where there is nobody else that looks like you. 100%. And... Um in um most of the not in the east where there was conflict but in the west and in the central areas um i came across um only a, a handful of black people um non-white people but um every time you see them you think my gosh it's another black guy there's another black guy there's two of us in the whole of the city and you, you catch his eye and you nod and you say, without words, you, you, you're saying, how you doing? I hope you're okay. Um, I've got your back, brother. And you just make a connection. Um, because uh, there are so few of us in places like that or, you know, within cities, within America, within the UK, um, you might be in an environment where you don't see other black people, and that could be a boardroom, Royfield, and um, you just connect, you just give a nod to say, I, I, I see you there, and I acknowledge that you're there, and I'm glad that you're there, and I hope you're well. And that's, there's a whole conversation in the tilt of a head. And, um, and sometimes you wonder, you know, how these things translate. And I was in, um, I think I was in um, Lviv, and there were a couple of uh, black guys in a bar, and I saw them from the other side of the bar, and I made my way round to where they were, were sitting, but not to, to sit with them, and just gave them a nod, just tipped your head. And they, they, they put their hand up and said, how are you doing? And all of a sudden we have a conversation. And that happened um, several times in my in my time in in Ukraine. Um, the they were all students, the students who'd moved from African states to um, study, um, to learn, to work, and to return to their homes. Um, they were pleased to be there. They had opportunities in. Ukraine that they hadn't been able to get elsewhere. So it was definitely worthwhile um, gaining their education there. There were language barriers, but um, like anything with younger people, sort of like, you know, from 20, 20 to 30, um, picking up language is about being social. And the more social they are, the more they get, they gain the language and they're able to translate um, their experience into the the local experience in Ukraine. Um, they did tell me about racism. There were challenges. They do ex it does exist. Um, they were feeling that um, they were treated as different. Um, they weren't given equal status. Um, but they did integrate, and they met Ukrainian women, and they had families. Uh, and they were still studying and they were looking at ways of, you know, going back to their, their home countries with um, their new families. 
and um, I think that I think that um, once you have a um, this is difficult to explain to some people, but once you have a white state, um, anyone who is not white is seen as um, different, dangerous, um, un, not like us. That's probably the easiest way of framing it. And um, and that doesn't exist in black states. You could be in an African country and a white person can be there. And it's like, oh, there's a white guy. Um, but if you're in white countries, um, specifically European, and uh, there's a black person there, it is sort of like, who's that guy? What's he doing there? And there are lots of question marks put over their heads. And um, I think that's what they felt. Um, there's a line that says, you don't get, as a black person, you don't get, um, you, 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 you get second looks, but you don't get second chances. And that's the sort of thing that I think the um, students that I met with were telling me. They, they felt different. They felt that they weren't accepted. And because there were so few of them um, across the whole state, a whole, across the whole country, because there were so few of them, um, they were seen as um, other. They weren't seen as part of the country. And, th and that, that, that was difficult for a lot of people. So when um, people's backs were against the wall, um, people are trying to leave the country, people are looking for ways to get into Poland, into Belarus, wherever they're going, um, or Moldova, I think, um, they may not be treated as equally as other people. And that's, that's, um, that's so disappointing. That's so scary at a time of war. Give us a, a sense of how your time was actually structured w when you were there. Um, just, just reiterate um, the length of time that you were there and the, the various trips that you took. You, obviously, you worked with and for the Ukrainian state broadcaster. Um, but you know, were you tell, tell exactly break down for us exactly how that worked? Were you assigned a team of journalists? So did you go when you went out into the field to give us that whole wide sense? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I, I worked with, the, the, the idea was that the broadcaster, the state broadcaster, UAPBC, didn't have the funds to get the equipment that they needed to adequately um, reflect the news of the day. So uh, a decision had been made for um, journalists to be either supplied with phones or use their own phones to news gather. And that includes um, the, the camera crews as well. And my role was to train the journalists to... Um, tell stories with their mobile phones and it worked it worked um i've seen the work that they've done i'm seeing the work that they're doing and um it's it's come across as a way of um being able to um cheaply and effectively um reflect the news they were um they were very creative already um when, when when life gives you lemons, you make you make the best lemonade you can, and they were I'm definitely doing that. And we I worked with um, a couple of journalists every day, going out covering stories. Um, and it, when we came back, we'd talk about what they'd done, how they'd done it, um, different tips on on how to do it. You can't teach people in the field you have to let them do what they're going to do um it's not like you're going to ah, 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 you're on someone's shoulder all the time while they're filming it's unnecessary and it doesn't gain um good results so you let them do what they're going to do and then afterwards you sit down and say well look how you've done that um are there any other ways of doing this and that's how you can maintain their confidence maintain their their trust and also um give them new tools to go out and film and that that worked we also did lots of um classwork lots of workshops in the um, newsroom everything was through interpreters um although the, the majority of um the news teams spoke english sometimes you needed to um, uh, translate certain ideas or concepts then, that you, and you needed a, a translator for that. So we always had someone to work through as opposed to working directly with. But um, as you can imagine, at the end of the working day, we're all being in the bar and the conversation was 100% English, which is, um, which is uncanny for me. So there's a lot to learn. 
um, there's a lot for me to take on board in terms of their culture, their ideals, and and how they work as well. That the, there were challenges there too. And how do you kind of quantify your, your success? You know, when the BBC sends you out to Ukraine and says, "Train people up," you know, with social media techniques. You know, uh, how do they quantify success? How do they know? that they've um, sent out not only the right person, but actually that people have actually been trained and walked away with uh, valuable skills? Um, how do they know they sent the right person? How can, I, how, can I, how can I answer a question like that? How can I answer a question like that? I feel it's, it's me. You know, oh, okay. it's, it's, um, okay, Errol. it's yeah, a challenge you, you, there. You were a trainer of some <laughs> repute in the BBC. But, but you know, I, I threw that in just as a little gentle... No, 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 no. It's, a fair, it's, a fair, it's a fair question. And, I'm, you know, I'm joshing with you, I feel. We go back far enough to be able to do that. Um, if I was in the UK the um, or in, in other regions... Um, the the gauge that would be used um, would be um, how many more f- news reports are being made using um, uh, smartphones, and it was exactly the same in Ukraine. And that figure, um, the 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 figure doubled straight away. Um, that that didn't that didn't take a lot of work. Um, it was about um, then building a level of smartphone films compared to the regular camera crew films. That took a little longer. That took years. But um, the number of smart film, smartphone-based news reports doubled in, in weeks. Uh, I think it was just a confidence boost for the journalists and for the... Um, for the uh, editors, the editorial teams, to be able to say, oh, actually, we can do it like this. We will do it. Let's give it a go. Let's see how this works. Um, And there's also the other side of it, which is not doing direct news reports, but um, the the, the TV stations were online as well as on um, uh, terrestrial uh, TV. And... Um, we we were able to do lots of Facebook lives. We're lots to do short interviews. We're able to do lots of teasers. We worked with the radio teams and um, turned interviews into video um, for 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 the radio, and then reflected that back onto the their websites, and that allowed loads of um, smartphone based um, material to be uh, edited on smartphones, edited on computers, and then uploaded to social media. So we were able to get a lot of material out quite quickly and change the the dynamic of how the um, material was seen online. Unfortunately, um, the majority of phones are HD, um, literally all mobile modern mobile phones are HD or 4K and they were broadcasting in um, the um, old standard of TV so it looked everything looked a little bit grainy um, unless you were watching it on online 
So um, TV on your sort of like granny's TV at home in the 80s is what normal TV looked like. Whereas if you went online, um, uh, a lot of these um, smartphone reports would bring it up to you know, modern um, standards of video, which was brilliant. You obviously will have made some real kind of long-lasting relationships with, uh, with your students, people who were out there in the field. And you really brought it home for me when you said that, you know, they were coming back, you know, wearing helmets and flat jackets, especially when they're in the east, when they're around khaki, because that was an active kind of war zone. Um, have you been able to maintain uh, the, any of those relationships? And, and, and how are they getting on, if you have? I've been talking to, um, I'll just use first names. I've been talking to um, a, a former colleague of mine, Serge, who was a reporter in Severodonetsk for UAPBC. And um, the, uh, he sent me photos of the area where he was working, the TV station. Um, he sent me video of it, um, where we'd been. Um, the TV station was gone. The TV station was levelled. So Vodonesk is pretty much levelled. The hotel where we stayed, um, the, the corner shop next to the hotel where we stayed is still there. So that's where we'd get... Um, our, our, um, our, our bread for our, our breakfast in the morning. Um, that the hotel's gone. I don't mean that it's been hit. It's gone. It's disappeared. It's just rubble. And seeing these sorts of things, um, yeah, it's it's quite upsetting. It's it's um, it means that all the messages that I send to him are stay safe, take care of yourself. And um, at first, Serge, this is probably February, he was um, staying in bunkers, staying in um, basements, um, preparing reports and going out, reflecting the news, capturing with camera crews. And if they couldn't gain access to a certain area, they would use smartphones. That's not always the best way to use smartphones because... Um, if you don't have access, you don't have access. Um, it, it can create all sorts of dangers. So it's it still means that you know you're not um, able to protect yourself. Just because you've got a small phone doesn't mean you're not going to attract attention. You you could still attract attract attention. And um, he um, stopped working because the. Um, station he was working at um was closed down and he didn't want to move his family are in the area his um friends live in the area he left Sivrodonesk but he stayed quite local and um and I was talking to him I said what do you want to do what are you doing he said I'm now um helping people I'm I'm going around um taking food parcels, giving people um, aid, um, working in humanitarian projects, um, supplying um, uh, necessary um, materials to people. And um, he, he said that he wanted to get back into journalism. 
and I told him that I would help him. And um, I helped him to get some equipment so that he could, don't forget he hasn't got his equipment because he hasn't got his, his favorite suit, because he hasn't got his shirts that he would wear every day, because he hasn't got um, his photo album of his wedding because when they were told they've got to go, they just up and left with whatever they were wearing, whatever they were carrying, and there was no opportunity to turn back. So I helped him to um, get some more equipment, and he's told me that he's um, he's back at work. So he's filming, and he's editing, and he's supplying material to um, as a freelancer in the area now. It's, it's great to, to know that these things happen, but it's also a reminder that when people say you've got to go, it's not like, oh, let me get my camera, let me get my, my, um, my favourite shoes, um, let me get my, the photo of, of um, my parents who I've lost. Um, you've just got to go. And that's how he had to leave Sevrodonesk. And... Um, and it meant that he lost all of his equipment as well. But I've been able to help him, and I've been able to direct resources to him so that he can get back on his feet and get out there and um, do what he feels he needs to do. It's a very powerful uh, human story. We're here um, speaking to a friend of mine, Errol Murray, from, from the UK, who uh, went out... Uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, to Ukraine uh, as part of a BBC program to train Ukrainian journalists uh, in how to use their phones uh, as a way of uh, collating and reporting on Ukrainian news. And um, Errol has seen the fruits of his labour uh, in no small part because through this war, through this uh, unjustified conflict, uh, I think one of the most powerful ways that Ukraine has got its message out is by, whether it's, it's by its soldiers or by its journalists, using their smartphones as a way to document uh, the Russian aggression. If you're in the audience, um, please raise your hand. Uh, you can come up and ask uh, Errol a question. You can ask him about his time in Ukraine. Uh, and maybe maybe ask him a, a question about so, so some of the things which he's seen, saw and reflected upon, considering now what exactly has happened. And I think um, very powerfully there, um, Errol, you, you told us that, you know, the hotel where, where you stayed um, in that town, that that hotel is no longer there, but the little corner shop still is, you know. So it's, um, it really kind of brings home to us, um, you know, the plight and the destruction that Ukraine is going through. At the moment, give us some, some kind of positive reflections uh, of your time in, in Ukraine. You know, were there some ways of which maybe your expectations were subverted? You know, you very honestly said, you know, you couldn't even have found the place on a map before you went there, but you went there uh, for the best part of a year, backwards and forwards, um, in, in totality, and you got to see so much of the country. Um, tell us about some of those reflections, which aren't necessarily to do with to do with your job, and, and tell, give us the, the kind of the feel um, of Ukraine and its people. I think that um, the first thing that hit me was the first thing that struck me was a sense of 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 national pride. Um, 
how how much they loved their country, how much they believed in what it was to be Ukrainian. And uh, I didn't quite understand that at the start. And I, I confused that to be nationalism, which is a, <clears throat> a which is a very dangerous thing, um, because that could be where uh, one country puts themselves over another country, as opposed to one country saying they feel that they are that their country is an, a, an amazing country. And uh, it, it took me a little while, took me a couple of visits to understand that perspective, to to understand that they weren't putting themselves over another country. It's because they've had, um, Ukraine's had such an awful history, a terrible history of, of famine, um, starvation, um, the way they've been treated by Russia. Um, I think there was a famine in the early 1920s um, where Russia literally took all of the, the food, the grain out of the country and um, and tried to starve them into um, a submission under um, Russian, not just Russian rule, but taking Russian values. And, um, and that, that created a, a, a depth of, of resolution that I think we're seeing in the war right now where they just dug their heels in and said, whatever happens, we're Ukrainian and we're here to stay and we love our country. And I'm talking about something from 100 years ago that is absolutely apparent right now. And um, once I understood that, uh, I was able to relate much more directly to them. And it was it was heartwarming to see that. It's, it was... I'm feeling it now, just thinking about it, because it was um, there. There are people, the the people who have been where, where families have been torn apart now, and the 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 people I was working with, the the, the women and children have been um, sent to safety in Germany or in Poland, and the um, the the um, their partners, the the men are staying to either fight um they're involved in logistics getting food around the country getting um equipment supplies around the country or um they were the people i was working with and they're continuing to do their job which is to report and reflect the news of the day so that 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 heart to be able to see that and understand that was an amazing thing also the um the i think the first time i went out was just before christmas and um uh basically if you are santa at christmas you're you're worshipped you're like a rock star and it's like it's like you know if you went to um a, a kindergarten in a, in a red suit with a, a big white beard um Royfield, the children are going to love seeing you. So um, there's a there's a tradition where you um, you people dress up, wear a Santa outfit, and just go from bar to bar to bar, 
and any bar that sees you dressed up as Santa at Christmas will give you a free drink. So you go from the next bar to the next bar to the next bar, and within an hour or so, you know, people are on their knees. Um, vodka's a currency in Ukraine, and there's a lot of spending. <laughs> there's a heck of a lot of spending. So it was, it was, it was great to pick up on the warmth and the 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 happiness that they they were able to share over Christmas. That was lovely. That was probably my first and deepest experience of Ukraine. Um, but what stays with me even now is um, the culture and their love, absolute love of their mother state. Very powerfully said. Uh, Pavel, uh, you uh, were the first person in the room before even Errol got in. So uh, if you've got a question, uh, Pavel, now is your time, sir. Hello, Errol. Uh, great to have you here. Thank you for, for joining us on Clubhouse. Um, um, while you were there, did you take any interest in the structure of the local media market um, and the role of the, of the public broadcaster? This may no longer seem relevant as all the media are in the emergency mode, but, but I'm curious if, if that was brought to your to attention. Yes, I was aware. Um, there were a lot, as in Europe, as in the UK, there were a lot of um, <clears throat> there were a lot of very rich Russians who um, have recognised that to improve how they improve their standing, they they um, it pays to get a newspaper, a magazine, a radio station, a TV network. And um, there were several um, TV stations that were owned by Russians, oligarchs, and, um, and they were slick. They looked great. They were fast. Um, they were. They had great equipment, and um, and they had all the ideas. They had the overseas programs as well. And then when you put the news into the mix, it's a very attractive proposition. And the state broadcaster didn't have that money, really didn't have that money. So it always looked, um, although they were able to present themselves very well, it always looked like um, the, the sort of like, it wasn't the best. There were other people making TV who made it look really good. And, um, and they owned, they had money. And the majority of the time, that money was coming from Russia. So that means that the influences, the stories, the style of the news was coming from um, uh, a Moscow-based perspective. And, and that's a problem. That was a real problem. Do you plan uh, to go back? You know, um, you, you've obviously formed a, a real attachment with the country and, and obviously you, you have colleague, colleagues there. Um, you know, when the when the conflict's over, do you plan to go back? And and could you possibly go back as you know as a, a follow up to to the scheme which which took you there? I've been in touch with the um, the um, media action, which is the organisation that took me there, and um, I've told them that I would like to return, and um, they said that the, whatever happens, there will be. A return project. So, 
I hope that to be part of that um, in the future. Right, right now, that, that's it's it's totally irrelevant. It's difficult to talk about it because um, the people who who I was working with, um, uh, uh, some of them are are still active. Some of them are, are driving trucks. Some of them are fighting for their lives. Um, some of them um, have had to leave the country. It's um, it's difficult to understand what the future could be, how the future can turn out. Um, I had a couple of ideas as to what would happen at the start of the conflict, um, before the conflict. Now I have no idea what's going to happen. So I'm just holding on and um, offering words of support to um, the, the my, my former colleagues, um, supporting however I can through um, the charities that exist and um, and staying in touch. That's all I can do right now. Uh, my friend, um, one of my friends, I asked him if he needed anything, if there's anything I could do, if there's anything I could offer to him. And um, he said, pray, just pray for us. Uh, they, the Ukrainian people uh, have your prayers and uh, the prayers of uh, the rest of the world. This is very beautifully said. Uh, Guta, uh, you're going to be uh, the last person who's going to throw a question to Errol. So uh, the time is yours, Guta. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, well, hi, Errol. And uh, I have a question. And Royfield, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to shift from journalists, cameras, and Ukraine to Arrow as a dad, right? I actually saw that you were the founder of Leeds Dad Support Group. And, yeah? Guta, you've busted me. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, we know how to do our homework, right? And that's, I find, fascinating because uh, especially being part of uh, feminist groups where there are a lot of debates and I have colleagues that one of the motives is if you don't have a womb, you don't have the right to be on stage. So I wonder with a dad like you who does that, tell me what motivated you, how it, it's, it's an amazing movement because we don't see that much. And so how it works, what, drove you to to be this super feminist daddy <laughs> where, where are you please Guta? i'm actually at the moment in dublin ireland oh wow <laughs> is, is that where you're you're from was that where you're based or at the moment yes that's where i'm based okay i'm just trying to get an idea of um what a, Orig a... originally i'm brazilian Okay, and um, what's the role of a father in a Brazilian family? Well, it's the typical, you know, the patriarch thing, sitting the head of the table, going to work, and then seeing the children ready to go to bed when they arrive in time for bed, right? Not going to school plays, not going to sports competitions. So it's changing a little, but, you know, but I was very curious because... Uh, it's uh, also uh, a debate until when 
you know we 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 would have to share involvement of um of the other 50 percent or not sure i live in um a city called leeds which is in the north of england and i um uh my wife and i moved up from london to um uh to have a family and we found ourselves um miles um hours from family and we've built up some great friends we have some great people around us but we didn't have family and when you have a baby you do need people who you can call at the drop of a hat and it's like i'm tired now i need you now I don't want you to come tomorrow and I don't want you to come tonight. I need you now because I'm going to fall asleep and I'm going to need someone to feed the baby or collect collect the child from nursery. Does that make sense, Scooter? Do you recognise that? Totally, totally, totally. And because um, we didn't have those connections, um, uh, which many people don't, because um, our connections, our lifestyle um in 21st century britain at least is is quite transient people move for work people move to study people um put down roots in different cities quite easily and then all of a sudden oh we've been here 10 15 years this is our new home and um i went into my the, into the newsroom at the bbc where i was working at the time and um, I went to all the mums, because mums make things happen. Mums make things happen, man. And I said, look, um, have you, do any of your partners want to meet me? And let's talk about um, being a dad. And um, I got, I think, three dads. Is there any way I can show, share photos with you, Royfield? Maybe not right now, but I can send a couple to you. And I got about three dads who joined me, and we um we talked about how tired we were we talked about how little we talked to our partners to our wives because we were exhausted and all conversations were about um did you get the nappies i got the nappies did you get the milk we need a pint of milk for breakfast i've got a pint of milk for breakfast and that's the exhausted voices of two people who barely connect and um and the poos we talked about the size of the, our, our kids poops they were these tiny little things that you know babies of you know hardly as long as your forearm and and there's truckloads of poop coming out we called them poonamis <laughs> and it, it was it was it was it was fun but it was exhausting and um i said and, and but we enjoyed the conversation and I said, should we do this again next month? And uh, they said, yeah. Um, fast forward 10, 11 years. My daughter is now 11 and um, standing up, looking me eye to eye, almost the same height as myself. Kids grow so fast. The groups are still running. We meet um, weekly. We get 20 to 30 dads at each session. We have... Um, play groups we have meetups we have um dads and kids walks we have christmas parties we have father's day festivals um we have um because 
over the last year or two, people haven't been happy to go indoors. We went outdoors. We had forest schools. And um, the amount of dads who, gosh, they just came out of the woodwork, brought their kids and, um, and, and joined us in play. Socially distanced at that time. Now that distancing has relaxed a little, but we still have to be careful. And, um, and when people say, oh, this is for dads, isn't it? I say, well, it, it is for dads because dads aren't as um, socially aware in terms of reaching out for help, reaching out for support, um, whereas mums have um, generally a, a bit more of a natural knack of connecting to other mums. Two mums can be at um, a, a, a in a playground at a, at a uh, uh, a play area with their children, see the children get on so and set up two play dates in 10 minutes. Two dads can be there and over an hour they might they might sort of grunt at each other. It's a stereotype, it's a massive stereotype, but I'm afraid there's so much that's real within that. So we wanted to find a way to facilitate um, making it easier for dads to connect. Uh, we focused on something called the first thousand days concept where um, lots of organizations um, specifically in the UK the National Childbirth Trust have um, said that that's those first thousand days this first sort of like um, uh, three three and a half years that's the core period of time to bond with a, between a parent and a child. And um, that's what we focus on achieving. Uh, Leeds Dads is supportive of children preschool. Um, once they're um, at school, I think that um, the activities that we do might bore them, but um, we do focus on the first five, first thousand days, sort of like the first three, three to five years. And it works. It's definitely worthwhile. Um, I took the con. I talked about what I was doing when I went to Ukraine. They filmed and uh, interviewed me, so I've, they've got. Uh, hopefully, they've got some reports out on what I was doing because we stayed in touch over the years, and um, they they asked me to tell them what they were doing. Um, and I talked to teachers when I was out there about the organization that I run leads dads and um, and the children were talking about their own experiences of home there is a very strong sense of um, fathers must be hands-on in Ukraine which I, I found really heartwarming um, uh, there's still a slowness though of of um, dads to connect with other dads to build networks um, maybe rather than go back and help people to film I might go back and set up some dads groups that might be a, a more interesting thing what do you think I find it fascinating because I think your daddy's group beside the bond with the child that it must be completely different than the average dad model you were actually you know adding to to 
to, 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 to the change. You are smashing patriarchal as well on the core of it as, as a guy, because you guys also have a lot of pressure from that model. Yeah. So congrats. I was like, wow, beautiful. Um, it's hard to be a dad. It's hard to be a man um, because the pressures that are put on us to be sort of like the breadwinners, the strong ones, the, um, the the one that doesn't cry, it's difficult, and um, and we do cry, and we we do hurt, and um, it's difficult not to, it's difficult to to feel pain and to show pain in an environment in a world that doesn't accept that model. So um, thanks for recognizing that, and. Um, you know, mums are brilliant. We love mums. Leeds Dads loves mums. You know, Leeds Dads wouldn't exist without mums. Um, if if my wife hadn't said, yeah, do it, um, we wouldn't be running this organisation 11 years later. So thanks, mums. Uh, well, well said, sir. Well said, sir. Um, Errol Murray, um, not only are you um, a, a good friend, uh, you're obviously uh, a most expert trainer, so much so that the BBC asked you uh, to go to travel from England to Ukraine over the period of a year to train uh, Ukrainian journalists up. Uh, and that has been incredibly timely considering the catastrophe which has befallen the country. And apart from that, you're, you're, a, you're a decent, you're a, more than just a decent bloke and obviously a great dad. Um, that has been um, a, a, maybe a, a little bit more intimate uh, mid-Atlantic mid where I spoke to my friend Errol Murray uh, about his time in Ukraine, training Ukrainian journalists. Um, we will go back to more standard programming um, later on uh, this week. Um, um, but what we're going to do, instead of doing um, another deep dive into the Ukrainian uh, crisis. We're actually going to um, look at uh, how different countries around the world, how they're uh, pivoting and how they're reacting to some of the uh, fissures which have come out of the Ukrainian con uh, conflict. So please um, look out for that. Um, if I could ask you, uh, dear listener, please, 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 and if you really appreciate uh, the content here on Mid-Atlantic, go onto a podcatcher of your choice. Anyone will do, uh, but preferably Apple Podcasts and write us a five-star review. But also, oh, but don't, don't just like do the, don't just hit five stars. Also write something as well, because that's incredibly important. It's incredibly important for the show, because it means that more people will then get to know about Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic, what we try and do here is to foster uh, conversations, great debate. Yes, we are left of centre, but we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We just try and win them over with the strength of our argument. You can write me an email at royfield at gmail.com. Love getting your emails and your feedback, whether it's positive or negative, send it to me. Even the negative ones, I turn it around to be a positive. I'm always the Buddhist. Um, I try and learn from that. So if you've got some some constructive criticism, you can email me at royfield at gmail.com. Um, and that's been just about it. So thank you, Errol Murray. Thank you, Guta Hegarty. Thank you, Pavel, uh, for, for your questions. And also thank you to the audience who've listened to this kind of intimate tale of um, Errol Murray um, in Ukraine, and just the last thing I'll say before we uh, well, get before Errol before to... you go, before go on, you go, I just want to say um, it's it's an honour to speak to you like this. I'm really pleased and grateful that you've 
that you've welcomed me onto the show, Royfield. And um, I need to remind people who don't know, Royfield is is London royalty. Royfield is West London magic. There are places that he can't walk down the street unless he, without being mobbed. So please be aware that you have an amazing host within this room. Thank you. You know, it, 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 it's always tricky to make a black person blush, Errol, but you managed to do that. <laughs> so, so well done, well done. Thanks for that, pal. Thanks for that. There you go. That's been a, a slightly more intimate mid-Atlantic. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.